We're turning tonight, if you have your Bible with you, to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. We've been making some studies in the life of the prophet Elijah. We come to chapter 18. And we're going to think for a few minutes this evening about confronting Ahab. Let's read it. 1 Kings 18 and verse 1. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show thyself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And Elijah went to show himself unto Ahab, and there was a sore famine in Samaria. Now look with me at verse 17 of this same chapter. And it came to pass, when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, and that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. Now therefore send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal four hundred and fifty, and the prophets of the groves four hundred which eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel, and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. That's where we'll stop reading. Let's look to the Lord once again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can have as the desire of our hearts to know more about our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for this book that you've inspired and preserved so that we can hold it in our hands in this meeting and in our homes and wherever we might be. We can open it and think about your thoughts. We can learn how you think about every issue of life. And we can learn what we are and what you want to do in us and through us. And the wonderful life of the Lord Jesus Christ that you offer to us as a free gift. We thank you, Father, for these things, and we pray that you'll help us as we look into this book this evening, that your spirit would have free course among us, you, that you would be able to convict us of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment that's shortly to come, and that your spirit would be our guide and teacher and, and teach us the things that we need to understand in this hour. We're so grateful that you have thought about us, that you would consider us, that you would care about us at all. And what a joy it is to, to think about the fact that the God who made us is intimately concerned about every detail of our lives, what we think, where we go, what we do, what we choose, what we refuse, all the things that are going on with us. You know about it. You know the deepest needs of our hearts and the secrets that we all keep from one another. We know, Father, that all of it is open to you. And we pray that you'll help us to enjoy that fact and not fear it, but to enter into it and appreciate the fact that the God who loves us and the one who sent his son to die for us cares about us this much. We ask you to bless our time together this evening and help us to learn something that will enable us to serve you more perfectly during the remainder of this week. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been thinking about the prophet Elijah, and we saw in the early part of this chapter that he was told to go and show himself unto Ahab. And the last time we met, we talked about the man Obadiah, who was a servant in the household of 
Ahab. He was a man who the Bible says feared the Lord greatly. And the Lord wanted to use Obadiah as part of this process. He, he, he met Obadiah along the way as, he went, as Elijah was going to see Ahab. He met Obadiah and spoke to him. And there was, a, there was a, a, quite, a, quite a few verses are devoted to the uh, occurrence here. And we, we read about Obadiah that the, the prophet told him to go and tell Ahab that Elijah was here. And Obadiah didn't want to do it. He, uh, he resisted that at first because he thought Elijah would disappear because he'd been hidden for three, over three years from uh, Ahab's soldiers who sought to, to, to find him and bring him, bring him in. And God had hidden him very successfully in, in two places. One was the brook Cherith, and the other was the home of the widow at Zarephath. And we looked at that and how God not only kept him hidden there, but miraculously supplied the prophet's needs in both of those places. But now he was called to meet face to face with Ahab. And this meeting with Ahab was designed by God because God told him here in verse 1, Go show thyself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. The Lord was going to end that drought that, and that famine that accompanied it over the land of Israel. He was going to end that and send the rain that was needed. But it wasn't until, it would not be until, the, the sins of the nation had been dealt with publicly. And that's what happens in the remainder of the chapter here. And we're going to get into that as the Lord leads. But right now, we want to talk about this meeting between Ahab and Elijah. This meeting between these two men is very interesting and very instructive. First of all, I want you to notice the effect of the drought and the famine on Ahab himself. The Bible says that the goodness of God should lead us to repentance. But that verse, that verse goes on to say, but it's possible to despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance, and after the hardness and impenitent heart, treasure up unto ourselves wrath against the day of wrath. So the Lord sends a famine and the Lord sends drought. But how does it affect the people of Israel? It didn't lead them to repentance. As best we can tell, the king and everyone on down the line continued in their worship of false gods, continued in their rejection of the commandments of the Lord. So how do you understand this? Think about, if you will, look with me at Isaiah chapter 26 for a moment. Isaiah chapter 26 mentions this very same, very same issue. Isaiah chapter 26. And notice, if you will, verses 9 and 10. Isaiah 26, 9 says this, With my soul have I desired to see thee in the night. Yea, with my spirit within me will I seek thee early. And then the reason is given... For when thy judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. So we get the impression that when the, the judgments of the Lord are brought into the world, like this judgment of, uh, against the nation of Israel, this judgment of, of a drought which produced a tremendous famine and, and a lot of loss, even loss of life, I'm sure. This was a terrible time. But it was God's judgment on the nations. And, the, and Isaiah says, For when thy judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn. They will learn righteousness. But notice the next verse, verse 10. Let, thy, let favor be showed to the wicked. 
Yet will he not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness will he deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. So what is it? Will the judgments of the Lord produce the righteousness that God is looking for? Will they produce the repentance and the humility that God designs? Or will they be rejected? We read in verse 9, When thy judgments are in the earth, the world will learn righteousness. But then in verse 10, Yet he will not learn righteousness. And so it seems almost a, a contradiction. How can, how can both be taking place? If the Lord sends his judgments so that his, his, so that his, uh, his dealings with mankind will lead us to repentance, then why is it that it doesn't lead to repentance in the lives of so many? Well, some people look at this and say, well, obviously, to them at least, this is the sovereign choice of God because he sends the judgments, but he only makes them effective, they would say, to those who, who, those who receive them and those who believe. But to those who do not, he does not make it effective to them. And so they make God the villain in the situation. It really comes down to that fact that they want to put the onus on God himself for choosing some and refusing others. But we understand from the Bible that the free will choice of every man enters into this. The free will choice. We even see it right here in that passage in Isaiah chapter 26. Let favor be showed to the wicked, Isaiah 26.10, yet will he not, yet will he not learn, yet will he not learn. There's a, there's a willingness or an unwillingness here. There's a choice to be made. David cried out, when he was led to repentance by the judgment that God was bringing in his life, he was, he was led to cry out, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. And the prodigal son was led to cry out in Luke 15, there was bread and to spare in my father's house. So the judgment that came into his life made him come to himself and see his need and cry out. The nation of Israel itself was led to repent by God's judgments. Look with me, if you will, at 2 Corinthians chapter 15 for just a moment. 2 Corinthians chap Chronicles, I'm sorry, 2 Chronicles chapter 15. And we'll see an instance of this in the life of the nation of Israel itself. 2 Chronicles chapter 15, and look with me at verse 5. 2 Chronicles 15, 5, And in those times there was no peace to him that went out, nor to him that came in, but great vexations were upon all the inhabitants of the countries. A nation was destroyed of nation and city of city, for God did vex them with all adversity. So right here we see the Lord sending judgment into the world. He's sending judgment into the world because of the sin of the nation. And notice what happens in this case. Verse 7, be ye strong, therefore, and let not your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. And, and when Asa heard these words and the prophecy of Oded, the prophet, he took courage and put away the abominable idols out of all the land of Judah and Benjamin and out of the cities which he had taken from Mount Ephraim and renewed the altar of the Lord that was before the porch of the Lord. And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and the strangers with them out of Ephraim and Manasseh and out of Simeon. For they fell to him out of Israel in abundance when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. So they gathered themselves together at Jerusalem in the third month, the fifteenth year of the reign of Asa. And notice verse 11. 
And they offered unto the Lord the same time of the spoil which they had brought, 700 oxen and 7,000 sheep. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. So this, this is an example of the judgment of God in the world leading to an actual humility and a repentance. The nation as a group was turning back to the Lord, renewing the altar of the Lord and making a covenant to seek God with all their heart. That's amazing. So, so why does it work that way sometimes, but not other times? Why was the nation of Israel led to repentance in, under, in Ahab's time, and they did not repent? Well, Ahab's rebellion is, uh, is typical. You might even think of Pharaoh and what happened to Pharaoh. Back in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 21, we read these words. And the Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh which I have put in thine hand. But I will harden his heart, that he shall not let the people go. And then in chapter 7, we read, Then Pharaoh also called the wise men and sorcerers. Now the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For they cast down every man his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. And he hardened Pharaoh's heart, that he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. So here's an example of how the judgments that came into the nation uh, of Egypt there did not, did not result in Pharaoh's heart being changed. As a matter of fact, he, he hardened his heart. He continued to harden his heart against what the Lord was doing. And so how do we understand this? There has to be, there has to be a choice. Turn, turn with me. I know you're having to turn a lot, but this is worth putting your eyes on for sure. Joshua chapter Joshua chapter 24, if you'll look there with me, we'll see how the Lord thinks about this whole thing. When the Lord sends trouble, when the Lord sends judgment into our lives, when the Lord sends difficulty, what is he trying to do? He's trying to draw us away from ourselves and help us understand our need, humble our hearts and receive him, draw closer to him. That's what he's out. That's what he's about. Look at Joshua 24 and the words of Joshua at the end of his life uh, to the nation of Israel. Joshua 24 and verse 14. He says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your father served on the other side. On the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. These words are familiar to you, I'm sure, but it's, a, it's, it's a, one of the very clear places of many, many, where the Lord makes it plain that he does not choose some and refuse others, but we choose. He makes himself available to every man, to every woman, to every boy, to every girl. He makes himself available to every person, no matter what nation they were born in or what religion they might be brought up under. He, he makes himself available to them. And, and that's the burden that's upon his shoulders. He said, regarding his sacrifice on Calvary, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. So that burden is not on our shoulders. That burden is on his shoulders. He will draw every single soul. But here's the problem. 
We think it's evil what the Lord's trying to do. We think it's to be rejected. It's to be resisted. And that's what Ahab did. He thought it was evil to serve God. And that's why he served Balaam and false gods. If it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day. Choose you this day. That's God's way. Choose you this day. No one's going to be able to stand before God and say, well, I never had an opportunity. I was never allowed to be a recipient of the gift of everlasting life because I wasn't part of the elect. That's just not going to happen. The Lord's going to make it plain so that every mouth will be stopped, that every person had ample opportunity to be saved. And they rejected it. They rejected it, and they still reject it. And that's why they're cast into the lake of fire forever. So the Lord is, is not going to play with people's minds and hearts and choose some and not others in some arbitrary way that we can only bow down to and respect. That's foolishness, and that's not in the Bible. Choose you this day whom you will serve. That's the answer to the question, the conundrum of why the judgments of God help some people and they seem to just make other people harder in their heart. The Lord is making it possible for every single person to receive him. And some will, and some will choose him, and some will believe him and serve the Lord, and some will choose the gods of the Amorites in whose land they dwell. Well, that's where Ahab was. Ahab's rebellion is pretty typical because every single one of us has an Ahab in our heart. We deal with a hard-hearted person ourselves. And Pastor Garrison's been talking to us about that, the depravity of our own nature and how bad it really is. And the reason why we don't trust the Lord more than we do is we don't realize how bad it really is. There's excellent messages that he's been bringing in that regard. But this verse in Joshua says to serve the Lord in sincerity and in truth. And those two things must go together. A lot of people are sincere. They believe things very sincerely and hold to their beliefs. And, and, uh, but they, their beliefs are not in any way related to the truth as revealed in God's word. You have to have both. You have to have the truth, but knowledge of the Bible is not enough. There are plenty of preachers who know some things about the Bible who are not saved. And they're not saved because they don't have that honesty of a sincere heart to receive it and receive it for themselves, humbling their hearts before God. So we must have sincerity. That uh, Hebrew word there uh, is word 8549 in the Strong's Concordance, and it, it means entire, entire. And uh, we see it in Genesis 17:1, translated perfect. When we read, and when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect. And that word translated perfect is the very same word here, translated sincerity. It means to be entirely devoted to the Lord, not half-heartedly, not, not saying, well, I'll make a deal with you, God, if you'll help me do this or help me get that, then I'll go to church more or I'll try to read my Bible or I'll try to be a better person. Not, not any kind of wheeling and dealing with God. The Lord said to Abraham, walk before me and be thou perfect, be thou perfect or entire, be entirely committed, entirely surrendered. That's what it's talking about. But the truth, the word truth here is the, the word 571 in our Strong's Concordance, and it means stability or certainty. And I think about Psalm 8611 when I think about that. It says, teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. I will walk in thy truth. 
I will walk in thy truth. See, the truth that's needed is not a truth that's just a, an idea, just something that we subscribe to because our church believes these 10 things or something like that, or something we've heard about philosophically speaking. But it's the truth that walks. It's a truth that walks. Teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. I will obey your voice. I will do what you show me to do. I will apply the things you're telling me. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an entire uh, surrender and an entire involvement in the certainty of God's word. Well, in this situation with Ahab, going back to, going back to uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, in this situation with Ahab, we read in verse 2 of this chapter that there was a sore famine in Samaria. The drought had caused a severe famine, a sore famine. People were dying. Animals were dying. There was, no more, there was no more crop in the field. There was no way to feed people. And so it was a terrible time. But did Ahab and his subjects learn anything by it? No, not anything, not anything. Did he acknowledge his transgressions? No. Did he remove the altars uh, to Baal? No. He even allowed his wicked wife, Jezebel, to cut off, which means to kill, the prophets of the Lord. And he allowed that to go on, even in the midst of this famine. He would not see it as a sign from the Lord that there was something wrong with the nation that needed to be corrected. We can see that in his own testimony if you look at verse 5 of chapter 18. Ahab said to Obadiah, Go into the land, unto all fountains of water, and unto all brooks. Peradventure we may find grass to save the horses and mules alive, that we lose not all the beasts. The living God had no place in Ahab's heart. Apparently, he was not even concerned about the welfare of his own people. His focus was on fountains and brooks and horses and mules, grass. The Bible says all flesh is as grass and the goodliness thereof as the flower of the field. But he had his focus on things that were right there in front of him. Temporary relief, that's what Ahab was looking for. We need to get these animals fed. We've got to find some water. We've got to find some food for these animals. Temporary relief and nothing else mattered. And we say, we say that that's a wicked heart. And yet, when we look in the mirror, we find the same wicked heart looking back at us. Because we often focus our attention on the little things that have to be done. I've got to do this. I've got to get this job done. I've got to get this bill paid. I've got to get this car fixed. I've got to get this done. I've got to do this and I've got to do that. And we forget. We forget that all of those things are incorporated in God's plan. We walk away from the Lord trying to do all of these things we think are so important for temporary relief of a particular situation. And make our life a little more comfortable, a little bit better. And we're, we, we turn away from the Lord as we do that. We turn away. We don't ask for God's blessing. We don't ask for his direction. We're not spending time in God's word. We're not praying about anything except, Lord, help me get my plan accomplished. I have a plan, and you just need to bless it, Lord. If you just bless it, everything will be wonderful. And we try, we try to do that. We try, I try to do that. And I find it in myself and I despise it. But there it is. There it is, the same heart of unbelief that Ahab had. The same heart. How do we confront this heart of unbelief? He was not even concerned about his own people, by his own testimony. He just wanted to get a little temporary relief from this famine. So Elijah confronts Ahab. What was Elijah thinking, I wonder, as he came to meet Ahab. 
I wonder if he was uneasy or fearful. I don't think so. I don't think so because he had good reason from his own personal experience with the Lord to know that the Lord could handle this wicked king. I mean, it had been three, over three years, and Ahab had been trying to find him, looking everywhere, even in the nations around Israel and within Israel itself, everywhere, using his informants and his people that were stationed throughout his kingdom to tell him where this man was so that he could apprehend Elijah. He thought that that might somehow clear things up. If he could just get Elijah out of the way, then everything would be better. And the whole nation could gather around their worship of Baal without any interference from this, from this uh, prophet of God. And so uh, was, was Elijah worried about that? I don't think so. I don't think so. The Lord had kept him safe through all of that time from Ahab. And the Lord had told him to go and speak to Ahab. And the Lord would provide the means to do it. Very often, we are unwilling to face the King Ahab that we know within our hearts. We just are afraid. We're afraid because we're not convinced that the Lord can handle that old nature of ours. We just seem so possessed by it and so under its control and so affected by it. We often are fearful and afraid to trust the Lord and, and believe his promises when he says, faith is the victory. Faith in God is the victory. We don't want to take him up on that promise. And so we're afraid. But Elijah pictures to us the right attitude toward that old King Ahab. He's not going to be afraid of him. God can take care of Ahab. And he might have been thinking, well, you know, if I go and confront Ahab, he's going to come with his soldiers and he's going to, he's going to throw me into prison or kill me. He's going to do me harm. But he can't do anything. He can't. Ahab is powerless apart from the Lord allowing something to happen. And the same way with our old nature. That's why the Bible says, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. We're to believe that because God says it's so. We're crucified with Christ. We don't have to give in to sin and selfishness. We don't have to. We've got to take God at his word and take a stand there. Just like Elijah confronting Ahab. Ahab was a great king with lots of power, but he was under God's control. And so is that old nature of ours if we'll see it. What about Ahab's attitude? as he came to this meeting. I'm sure he was incensed that Elijah had, uh, had appeared on the scene after he'd looked for him all that time. But I think he was half afraid too because I think about uh, John and his relationship to Herod in Mark chapter 6. We read, Herod feared John. Herod was a king and John was a prophet. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and a holy, and observed him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. So Herod, even though he was a, a ruler, was, was a, a man who observed this just man, John, and, and saw that he was a just man and a holy man, and was willing to hear him from time to time. And I think Ahab was much like that. He, he would like to kill Elijah. But on the other side of the coin, he was afraid of him. He was afraid of him because he knew that it was his prayer that brought this famine, brought this drought and famine into the nation. And he, so, he was, so he was a little bit respectful in that way. But he still didn't receive him. He still didn't believe him. I think about Felix in Acts chapter 24. The Bible says, And as, he, as Paul reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled. He trembled. But then he said, go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. 
I think that's much like Ahab. He really didn't want anything to do with the God of Elijah. But at the same time, he trembled when Elijah talked about righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. I believe that's the way Ahab was. And so here he comes. He comes and he reveals himself by his, by his words. He reveals his heart by his words. Look at verse 17 of 1 Kings 18. And it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? That was his word. Art thou he that troubleth Israel? Blaming Elijah for the problems in the nation. But isn't that what people do today? People who don't know the Lord blame Christians and the preaching of righteousness from the Bible as what's causing the problems in society. If we could just throw out the word of God and throw out all that preaching and all of that teaching, then we could just move on to greatness and make the world a better place and just love one another and solve all the world's problems. The Christians are the problems. They're the ones who are causing the trouble. And that attitude hasn't diminished at all. It's still around today. Blaming God and his pe- or his people for all the troubles that are being faced. But you see, this old Ahab that lives in our hearts does the same thing. We blame God or his people for the troubles that we're facing. Oh, if that sister so-and-so, if she would just do right, or if that brother so-and-so would just get things right in his life, then my job would be a whole lot easier. And we, we look at, at others that way. And that's, that's the same attitude of Ahab, the same attitude of Ahab's, thinking that the problem is really God. He's not moving on our behalf the way we'd like, or his people are not moving on our behalf the way we'd like. And that's where the problem's coming from. But the problem was not coming from Elijah. The problem was not coming from the prophet of God. It was coming from Ahab himself. And in verse 18, Elijah answers him and says, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, and that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. So not only does Elijah turn the charge back on Ahab, but also gives the proof of it. He says, here's the proof. You've forsaken the commandments of the Lord. The Lord said, I am the Lord thy God. Thou shalt make no graven images. And both of those first two commandments were broken by Ahab and the people of Israel as they worship these false idols. Thou hast followed Balaam. The word Balaam there is a plural word. Uh, Baal is the singular and Balaam is plural. They had all kinds of gods and goddesses that they worshipped. But primarily, the, the god Baal was the god who was a god of fertility and supplied the, the rain and the, uh, and the crops and was, uh, and was the one who gave the, the, the good crops and the food. And, and yet, for three and a half years, Balaam had done nothing for Israel. Balaam had not been able to do anything for these people. And yet, they continued to worship this false god. He was not doing anything for them, and yet they continued to believe him. Balaam's mother was Asherah, and she was a goddess and also the mistress of Balaam. When they practiced this Baal worship, they did what was referred to as sympathetic magic. Sympathetic magic. And that's where you do things to try to get the gods that you're worshiping to do things. So you do it. And that helps them do it, and that makes the, the, the world go, go around. And that was the idea. And so that's why they had all kinds of immorality. 
They had adultery. They had fornication. They had incest. They had homosexuality. But all of those things were practiced in an attempt to get the Father God, the, uh, the Baal, and the Asherah, the mother goddess, to get them to have relationship so that that would make the crops grow and the rains come and everything be better. It's, it's gods that have the same wicked attitudes and the same wicked behaviors that, that, uh, that people enjoy and the ones they want to be a part of and participate in. And so it's very convenient to have a god that thinks like you do because then you can... Pr- you can uh, run after your own sins. You can run after your own fleshly interest and, and, and feel like it's, uh, it's, it's okay with the God that you're following. And so the immorality that they practice in their worship of the Baal was, uh, was an immorality that found a, a, uh, a convenient um, channel for the lust of the flesh that were already in the people that were following Baal. And so it was a very convenient religion in that way. But it was very impractical in another way because it didn't do any good. It didn't make the nation a better place. It didn't make people have better lives. And it didn't have, it certainly didn't send them the, the rain that they needed for their crops because, the, because the, the God Baal is a false God. And the God of heaven, the one who is in charge of those things, was sending a judgment to show that Baal was nothing. And so Elijah says, Gather to me all Israel. Unto Mount Carmel, gather to me, verse 19, send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel. And the prophets of Baal, 450, and the prophets of the groves, 400, which eat at Jezebel's table. So here's that prophet Elijah commanding the king. You see what's going on there? He's not afraid of Ahab. He's able to command Ahab, and Ahab, amazingly enough, does what the prophet says to do. Well, it seems, it seems almost impossible to believe that it would happen like that. You'd think Ahab would just say, I'm not doing any of that stuff. I'm not going over to Carmel. You just pray and get this rain going. You take care of it or I'm going to kill you. That sounds more like something somebody would say from a king's position. But the Lord was working in this. And I'm telling you that the Lord does the same thing for that Ahab we're fighting against that nature that we have. When we trust God, we believe God, God puts that old Ahab of our nature in its place, on the cross, crucified, out of the way. The Lord does that when we believe him about it. Standing there like Elijah, not afraid, trusting God to take care of King Ahab. That's what I've got to do. Every morning when I get up, every day when I walk through this world, I've got to continually do that. I've got to say, Lord, you've said I'm dead to dead. I'm dead. I don't need to, to go that way. I don't need to go that way. And, and I'm counting on you, Lord, to give me the strength to make the choice that I need to make this right. Make the right choice. And the Lord will do it. He does do it. And you know he does it because he's done it for you. Is it a battle? It will always be a battle because that old Ahab wants to get back on that throne and take over again. But whenever he's in charge, it's a famine. It's a famine and a drought. It's an awful thing. And, and you know how it is. When we do what we want to do by nature and we don't count God truthful and righteous and able to, to carry out his promises, when we don't do that, it's a famine in our life. It's a famine. It's a terrible time. But it doesn't have to be that way. 
as we're going to see in this chapter, God is able to overthrow Baal and all his prophets and King Ahab and all of those who stand on the side of what's wrong and the side of the world and the side of the flesh. He's able to to overcome all of that uh, if we're willing to trust him for it. Why did Ahab comply? Maybe he was just desperate. He could see that his false religion wasn't bringing the water that was needed for the crops. Now, he wasn't ready to believe God. He wasn't ready to tear down the altars of Baal. He wasn't ready to do anything uh, that would uh, upset the the people and their, their chosen religion at this point. He wasn't willing to do any of that, but he did want the water. He did want the water. He did want to eat. And so his immediate need maybe caused him to comply. But I think also the hand of the Lord was upon him. The hand of the Lord was upon Ahab to do, have him do exactly what, what, Ahab, or what Elijah commanded to be done. Is the Lord dealing with us in judgment in some kind of way? We don't like to hear that idea. And even Christians sort of get their back up a little bit if you suggest that something that's going on might be the judgment of God. Uh, we don't want to hear that. We want to think, well, you know, it's just part of the overall scheme of things and it's not really in particular about me and the Lord's not trying to deal with me about anything. Well, that's the way, that's the way Ahab thought. That's the way he thought. He thought the Lord was, that this trouble was in the land, but it, but it wasn't anything to do with him. It wasn't anything to do with his choices. He wouldn't apply it to himself. And we're just like that. We don't want to hear that what God is doing is designed to get our attention, but it is, it is. And we have to, we have, it's useless for us to be praying and asking God to do this and that if we're not forsaking our sin. Psalm, Psalm 66 and verse 11 comes to mind in this, in this regard. And it says this, 66, 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. That's pretty plain, isn't it? If I maintain those idols, if I continue to go my way, if I won't let the Lord deal with me about things in my life, if I turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to that and regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord's not going to hear me. It's useless to be praying when the Lord's saying, take care of this. You need to do something about this. You need to change that. You need to put this thing down. You need to take this thing up. You need to be serving me in this way. And we know what it is. I don't know what it is in your life. You don't know what it is in my life. But you know what it is in your life, and I know what it is in my life. And that's where we have to make the choice. Are we going to stand with Elijah and, and reject and, and, command, and command that Ahab to go get the people and bring them to Mount Carmel so God can do what he needs to do there? Are we going to stand with Ahab and that old nature and say, well, I don't see a problem here with, with what we're doing in our religion. I think I've got a plan. I'm going to be okay. I have an idea, a way that I'm going to make things work. All I need for you to do is give the rain. Just give the rain so I can eat, so I can go on and do what I've promised, what I've planned to do. Idols must be destroyed before he will accept our worship. What are those idols? What are those idols? We'll have to save that kind of an investigation for another lesson. But what are the idols in my life? What are the idols in your life that the Lord's trying to point up and point out and remove? We need to agree with God quickly. We need to agree with God and get on Elijah's side in this confrontation. And we are able, by God's power, to do what needs to be done just like he did. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We pray that you'll help it to be a conviction 
and an encouragement at the same time. We know, Lord, that we have a battle facing a wicked king, and that's the king in our own lives, the king of our hearts, and we love our way. We love it, and we, we really don't want to have anything interfering with it, and we don't want to give up. We don't want to humble ourselves. Ahab never humbled himself. He never gave in. He never turned away from his transgressions, and eventually it cost him his life and his soul. But we pray, Father, that you'll help us to see that there is a victory. And faith, faith in what you have told us is that victory. Give us grace, Lord, to apply it to our hearts and to ask you in the secret place to come alone with you and pour over your word and ask you to show us what are those idols that we've been holding on to that need to go. We ask you to help us and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.